we know very well how phototransduction works, how the visual cycle works. Now the big challenge is really trying to understand how age-related macular degeneration comes about. And trying to solve that, I think, is, is a very big deal. I'm Jane Grogan, and I'm a scientist, specifically an immunologist, so someone who studies how the immune system works. One key part of my job as a scientist is to communicate ideas with other scientists and also with people outside of the field. One of the cool things is this podcast allows me to do both. For the past two seasons, I've had the privilege to speak to some of the brightest minds in research, but I'm not done yet. This season, I'm going back into the bar to see what my colleagues are doing to research some of the most complex diseases and see what they're up to. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into A Bar. Do you ever think about how your eyes work? No, not really. I mean, we, we've studied it at some point. I don't really remember like how it works. Uh, we did study about it back in the day, but... We take it for granted sometimes. I mean, yeah, I, I remember in like biology class, we had courses on, you know, human anatomy and stuff. Just thinking back on science experiments, I, I know the white part's like made from the same thing as the eggs are made of. <laughs> Weirdly enough, sometimes I think about what if our eyes get so hot they become hard-boiled eggs. Welcome back, everyone. In today's show, we're going to take a deep dive into the eye. The eye is something very unique, and it's a protected organ within our body that's protected from a lot of common inflammatory responses. However, there are certain diseases that are very specific to the eye, and one of these is macular degeneration. So today, we're going to unpack that. And we have with us Menno van Lucheren Campagna, a research specialist in the field of eye biology and interestingly also in neurobiology and immunology. Now, how does that all come together? Welcome, Menno. Thank you, Jane. I want to start really kind of high level and get a picture of what the eye is. Perhaps you could help describe what the eye is physically. So, the eye, the lens in the eye is focusing the light on the back of your eye and the back of your eye is where the retina is, and more specifically the macula. And the macula is extremely important for what we call central vision, and it's also where we have most visual acuity, which means that that's what we use to drive a car or to recognize faces uh, or watch TV. The other part of the eye is the vitreous. The vitreous is its cavity filled, filled with, a, with a, a viscous material to keep the retina to the back and also to filter the light. Uh, so it has components that uh, are very clear, uh, but keep a, a very strict path between the lens in the front of your eye and the retina. So you have to look at the retina as a projection screen, but it has to be positioned exactly in the, with, with the right distance to the lens to get a very clear um, um, projection. Um. So that's keeping everything in focus. So the light's coming in through the lens, it goes through the vitreous, it's picked up by the rod and cones, which mm -hmm. is in the retina. And then this information is conveyed to the brain out through the optic nerve at the back of the eye. That's correct. So, so once that uh, light is converted into electrical signal, that electrical signal is relayed to what we call retinal ganglion cells. And they have very long axons that go all the way through the optic nerve to your visual cortex. And that's where the perception of that vision is created. Humans and non-human primates have macula, but mm -hmm. other species don't. For many species, the central vision is not the most important thing. So you can, for example, imagine that a mouse has to have the ability to see as well 
to 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 the to the to the sky. To make sure the bird doesn't. To make sure the you. bird doesn't <laughs> capture it. So it needs this peripheral vision yeah. that um, we don't need as much necessarily. That's correct. And also nocturnal animals, they uh, they need less of 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 this daylight vision. They need night vision, uh, where they are much better off using the total retina. So there is definitely differences between um, 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 us having this macula and species that don't, and what the requirements are for, for, for this vision, what their most important survival tactics are. It's just fascinating that our vision has co-evolved with us as a human species, so that we have central vision. Yes. Maybe it's also it's very important for us to recognize each other. You never look at somebody with your peripheral retina. And um, it's also extremely important to make sense of what you see. So there is a lot of things that we as species have evolved to do. And, and, and so also non-human primates, where you need your central vision, uh, even tool, working with tools. Eye-hand coordination. Hand coordination, exactly. Yeah. That's so fascinating. And for the audience, what exactly are rods and cones? So cones, they are there to, to, for your daylight vision and for color vision. Rods, you use those when it gets darker. I have to just ask, how do they get these names? Do they look like rods and they cones? They look like when rods you look and at them cones, in, yes. In a microscope or...? Exactly. Yes, rods are, are pretty straight. Cones look like a cone. So it's the molecular structure of it's these It's really things. the structure of Fantastic. these. Fantastic. Yeah. That's a nice thing of the eye. This maybe I'm also fascinated by the eye. There's a lot of visual to it. So the rods and cones are, have these inner segments and outer segments. They're specialized neurons. And the outer segments is where phototransduction takes place. And what is phototransduction? There's a process where light gets converted to electrical signal. And that's what then feeds into the brain, obviously, through the optic nerve. And that electrical signal goes all the way, travels all the way through the optic nerve to the brain, to the visual cortex. So regulating that um, photoconversion must be very well-tuned and obviously very important. It's very important, very well described. So it's, it's really um, a combination of uh, an opsin and a vitamin A derivative. It's called 11-cis-retinol that is converted into old trans-retinol. Um, and that conversion creates that electrical signal. And when you, when you create that old trans-retinol, um, there's a moment you have to supply new 11-cis-retinol to keep that photodestruction going. So there is a moment where you have a very intense use of that vitamin A that you don't see anything, and that's when you have a flash of light in your eyes when you drive in the dark and a car shines with, with headlights into your eye or somebody makes a flash picture of you. And there's, there's this moment where you see a dark, and, and that's called bleaching. So that's where you have no ability to supply enough of your vitamin A derivative, your, your 11-cis-retinol, to, to produce that photoconversion. And obviously this is a split second. Right. It's, a, spl it's a split second. <laughs> and, and then you quickly have to um, refill the reservoir. Right, and that reservoir is, is filled by these retinopigment epithelial cells. So this really gets us to how important these photoreceptor rods and cones and the retinopigment epithelial cells are, because they both are important for the phototransduction. So in the retinopigment epithelial cells, there's a very important process, several enzymes that convert uh, 11 cis to, uh, to, to all transretinol. 
uh, back uh, in, in a process called the visual cycle. Um, unfortunately, it's, it's these two cells, the photoreceptors and cones and the RPE cells, that die in AMD. So these most important parts of your retina that you ex absolutely need to create um, a, a vision, um, they get lost. So you can't sense the light once those cells are destroyed? Correct. And then they can't photoconvert that information to the Correct. brain, so what you get left with is literally a black hole it's in a black your eyes. Correct. Correct. Hi, Jane. Hey, Wellington. Are these epithelial cells in the eye similar to the ones that we've talked about in other podcasts in the intestines? Well, in terms of defining them as a cell, yeah, they're all epithelial cells. However, these cells organize themselves slightly differently or release different factors depending on the environment that they're in. Let's talk about diseases within the macula particularly something called macular degeneration, which can be devastating, especially in aging populations. Could you walk us through what that is? So in, in macular degeneration, that's where you lose photoreceptor rods and cones, which are critical for phototransduction. And you also lose a very important layer, which is called retinal pigment epithelium, that works very closely with these photoreceptors to convert this process of visual transduction. So those cells, unfortunately, are the cells that give up, and we still have very little knowledge how that happens. So why do you lose these photoreceptor rods and cones, and why do you lose these photoreceptor retinal pigment epithelial cells uh, that are required, absolutely required, for the survival of these photoreceptors? And, and how does macular degeneration, or actually, as we, um, some people will know it as AMD, or age-related macular degeneration, um, how does it present itself, and what does it kind of, quote-unquote, look like? So, in the early stages, uh, before you even notice anything in your vision, you, you, you get larger numbers of deposits that you call drusen in the macula. And these drusens are really composed of uh, mostly lipids and proteins, and they form just under these retinal pigment epithelia cells. Do we know how these drusens form? Is it just protein aggregation, or is it driven by certain signals? So we think the drusen is, is products that are secreted by RPE cells that are not very happy. So the epithelial cells that have right. gone through some perturbation. Yes, and, and the drusen are, uh, they tend to, to grow over time, and they, they, they also produce some stress uh, against these RPE cells. So it's part of drusen maybe being toxic to the cells directly, but also part of forming a physical barrier between the retinal pigment epithelial cells and the choroid, which is under the, the drusen or under the, the uh, membrane on which the RPE cells lie. It's like layers of an onion, right? <laughs> yes. All stacked on each other. Yes, and, 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 and that's where, you know, that barrier is, is extremely important because uh, uh, on one hand it keeps blood vessels from growing into the retina, but it also makes sure that nutrients that are supplied by these blood vessels get to these photoreceptors. So the photoreceptors are not directly uh, vascularized. You don't want to have vasculature in an area where you need to create vision because that will disturb the vision. As the disease progresses, what happens? So eventually you will lose uh, uh, retinal pigment epithelial cells and then two things can happen. Um, you will have some compensatory vascularization called neovascularization which in a way is good because now you supply the photoreceptors and the RPE cells with blood vessels and with everything that the blood can supply. But on the other hand, there's a big disadvantage because you also disturb the vision. 
So this form uh, of macular degeneration is called wet age-related macular degeneration. So the vascularization, um, <clears throat> which is kind of coming in to provide nutrients and help prevent the damage, at the same time it's kind of causing some of the damage, correct? That's correct, because that vasculature is leaky, and that leakiness, that what's called edema, is, is very disturbing for the vision. Jane, this neovascularization, is this the body trying to heal itself? Yes, and this is a really natural process. The body tries to make new blood vessels after damage or whether it's trying to reperfuse, you know, damaged tissue. And this is what's going on in the eye in this case. And so you're getting new blood vessels that are being formed. But when you don't have a strong protective barrier, when those epithelial cells have broken down, it allows for leakage. So the, the blood that's coming in, the new blood that's coming in to form the vessels, does start to leak out into the eye as well. So that leakiness is the wet AMD. And how does that compare with dry macular degeneration? So dry AMD, you get loss of retinopigmented epithelial cells and photoreceptors without having this neovascularization. And it's very possible because you don't have this neovascularization, uh, you have a more rapid progress of loss of these retinopigmented epithelia and photoreceptors. So over time, you start with a few dropouts of cells, and it increases uh, with larger areas that, uh, that drop out. So in a concentric way, it spreads through the macula. And in about five to, to 10 years' time, people go from having no noticeable effect on vision to being legally blind. So that's a big problem. That's a great biological description. But for listeners who aren't familiar with the disease, is there a way you can describe what AMD looks like when you have it or when you're developing it? Yeah, so, so um, it's a bit more difficult to do it for neovascular AMD because neovascular AMD is, is a blurred vision. It's like looking through a bottle of water. Uh, for geographic atrophy, it's easy to explain. It's really like put, put two fists in front of your eyes and then try to see. So you have still your peripheral vision to some extent, depending how close you put those fists to your eyes. But in your central vision is, is lost. So you can't see the center. I'm actually, so you cannot see I'm the actually doing this right now. Yeah. I'm putting fists you in front of my see eyes. The center. Yeah, so you just see darkness and then yes. the vision. So recognizing faces is very difficult because you, you're used to see that in the, in, with your central vision. Uh, driving a car, you need your central vision. Watching TV, you need your central vision. Watching newspapers, so the quality of life impact. Quality of life is huge. big. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to shift gears and ask you: How do you get the drug into the eye? So, currently, the only way we do, we can do this is by injecting it in the eye. So, use this very small needle and inject the drug, uh, which uh, so far is an antibody or an antagonist, um, in the eye. In the eye, behind the eye. It's it's uh, uh, through the conjunctiva, the white part of your eye that you, when you look at it um, and you inject it in the vitreous so in that cavity filled with, uh, with, with, with this more like viscous components and then the drug stays there for about a month and then you usually have to re-inject. Okay so that was hard to listen to Jane. So why do you need to inject it locally as opposed to other therapeutics where you can just inject it into the blood? Well, we began the show talking about how the eye is unique. And one of the unique aspects of this is a so-called immune-privileged organ. So it has barriers to the immune system because you don't want general inflammation to come in there. You want it to be quiescent as possible, and you don't want to have your vision impaired through inflammation that may cause swelling, for example. And so 
the result of protecting the eye from the systemic circulation is that you can't inject drugs systemically and have them penetrate the eye. So what's really important for some of these eye treatments is that you need to deliver the drug into that particular organ, in this case, the back of the eye. What's the pathophysiology of macular degeneration? What are the causes? I know it's associated with aging, but that could be due to many different factors. Well, genetics is extremely important, and we know that now that we have been able to sequence the patients and compare them with controls, so genetics drives over 50% of the disease, which is uh, quite substantial looking at other diseases. So what do you mean by that? What I mean with that is there's certain genes that are affected, and when you have polymorphisms, or so single nucleotides that are changed in these genes, you have a much higher risk of getting AMD. And so far there's about 36 genes that, are, that have common polymorphisms that associate with the, with the disease, with the risk of disease. And do these common polymorphisms help you and your colleagues in the field focus your research into certain areas then? Absolutely, because that's the way we can understand the human disease better. Uh, these genes that are affected are obviously very important for the health of your retina. You've been working to look at the, the function of a number of these genes that have been identified, and one of them that I know you have worked on for a very long time is something called complement. Yeah. What is complement? So, so complement is um, a series of proteins that we carry in our blood that are extremely important to fight pathogens by poking holes through what we call a membrane attack complex. And they also elicit immune system activation. So they bring in immune cells that eat these pathogens, that phagocytose these pathogens. They're kind of like a trigger, a signal that something's going on and right. then bring in the army. Right. right. So it's very important that we have complements uh, because without complements you will get infections. But you in don't the, want it in the wrong place, like the eye. But if it gets in the wrong place, and in the example I mentioned, uh, when you have neovascularization or you have a break in the, in the blood retinal barrier, then um, these neurons get attacked. Uh, photoreceptor rods and cones get attacked the same way as pathogens get attacked. So complement pokes holes in them, brings immune cells in there, particularly monocytes and macrophages, and they start attacking uh, the eye, uh, thinking this is a, another pathogen. So why not just remove the complement from the eye? And that's the strategy to, to block complement activation in the eye. Again, there is certain challenges with that because complements are very abundant. So you will need to have enough drug in the eye. Um, you will also have to have that drug at the right place because now you're really looking at the interface of the eye and the blood. And, and that's a challenge. So you can argue, yes, if you could, blocking complements systemically in the blood may be the best way to go about it but it comes with a safety risk, so we cannot do that. So where is the field going in terms of delivering drugs into the eye with biomedical devices, delivery devices? What's new? Well, there's several uh, things that are being explored right now. One of them is a device. You can uh, plug a device in the eye that you load with your drug, and that device will slowly release the drug over time. So instead of uh, having to come back to the doctor's office every month, now you can uh, uh, give the patient, you can refill that device every half year or every year. Uh, the other way uh, is, is gene therapy. So if you're able to supply a gene that's, that, that creates a protein that, for example, blocks complement activation, you can put that gene 
in the eye uh, through a vector to an endovirus or, or endoagitated virus. So it's localized to the eye nowhere else. And then it's localized to the eye. You, you can get one injection and maybe get out years. And that's been very successful in monogenic diseases, not so much in age-related macular degeneration. But if you have one gene that you want to bring back and restore the system, that's a great way of getting around having to give monthly injections. And of course, monogenic just means it's one gene associated with the disease right. as opposed to multiple genes. Yes, correct. Um, the other part where the field is really going is, is trying to find out can we approach age-related macular degeneration differently by cell therapy. So when people lose uh, retinal pigment epithelial cells or photoreceptors, can we replace the them back, yep. by other cells? Um, and, and there's now clinical trials uh, ongoing with stem cell therapies, clinical trials where they put sheets of retinal pigment epithelial cells back in areas where they got lost. So that's another area I think is, is really promising because now you really think about restoring the function. Uh, when you treat with therapeutics, you can halt the disease, but you cannot restore what's already lost. Jane, is a monogenic disease easier to treat than one involving multiple genes? In theory, yes. A monogenic disease really is just a disease that occurs because of mutation in a single gene. So if that single gene can be corrected, for example, with gene therapy, that would be simpler than a multifactorial multi-gene disease that has so many different components to it that it becomes complicated to dissect and then target. And in this case, it's not just multiple genes that are out of whack, it's multiple cell types as well. It's also thinking about the retinal pigment epithelial cells, the photoreceptors, as well as the complement and the vascularization that we were talking about earlier. It's very complex. I think the, you know, the biology of the eye and the, you know, therapeutic treatment of eye disease really points to how I think the field across all different diseases is going in terms of trying to get a drug to somewhere that's diseased very specifically and not have any other toxic effects systemically. Yes, yes. And ophthalmology is, is a great area to do that because you can see what you're doing. You can, with a slit lamp, look in the back of your eye and see how your therapy works. You can do surgery to find out if your cells are growing in the right direction and, and, and cover the right patch that, that uh, has lost cells. Um, so in ophthalmology, you can really do uh, very targeted cell-based therapies of because course, of that. Because this is very different from something like arthritis or even cancers because um, in order to look at the changes in the disease, you either have to wait over time, so your joint's not swelling as much or your cancer has shrunk, but you can't really look intermittently along the way, whereas right. you can with the eye. Yes, yes. Yeah. So that's, I think, uh, why, why cell-based therapies and also gene therapies are taking off in the ophthalmology space. So it's a really exciting area to be working in. I really want to go back to your story. How did you end up working in the eye? Because I know... You um, actually know you as an immunologist, right, when you first started working on complement. Um, but you didn't start there. How did you decide to get into science, and where did you start? Well, the, the, my training was in, in neurobiology, and uh, I've been fascinated with neurons. Then when I came to the immunology department, we discovered a new complement inhibitor. So combined, you know, combining my, my background in neurobiology, my interest in immunology, um, 
the eye was a great place for me to work. It's this huge convergence, right? You've got the immunology part with the complement, then the neurobiology, because it's all about getting the right signals from those photoreceptors back into the brain. Yeah, and you know, it's also part of it, the fascination with how the eye works. And uh, it's such a well-organized system. And as I, as I mentioned, I think we know very well how phototransduction works, how the visual cycle works. So there's a lot to go from. And then now the big challenge is really trying to understand how age-related macular degeneration comes about. And, and trying to solve that, I think, is, is a very big deal, given that the disease is increasing um, in, in terms of incidence with the aging population. Do we have any understanding why that is? It's increasing because our lifespan is getting longer. So we uh, have a higher, you know, the risk increases with age, uh, hence the name. So above 60, you get uh, a 30% chance that you, that you get um, uh, retinal degeneration, especially when you have the, uh, the genetic factors against you, working against you. Which increases the risk. And uh, over 80, it, it is exponentially increased. So that's, that's really the reason why it becomes such a big problem. How do you and how does the field study it when the human is the only place where the disease manifests itself? Well, it's really the best way to study the disease is to study human disease and, and study it in humans. And I think what has been an, a tremendous uh, uh, and still is a development is the imaging. So as I said, you can get access by, with, with uh, imaging modalities to the retina. Uh, like optical coherence tomography is, is a way you can see all the layers of the retina and find out what happens over time. It's non-invasive. Um, and, and those imaging technologies and also fluorescein angiography, we can fill the, the vasculature with a dye and you can now visualize those. They're very important in understanding the disease because they tell you exactly where the problems are and how they develop over time. And I think that together with the human genetics, which has also been a recent development, it's only the last 10 years that we start understanding the genetics of age-related macular degeneration. Um, if you combine these, these developments in imaging with a better understanding of the human genetics, you can start understanding the disease better and start understanding what are your targets and how do you go about targeting? Do you need to increase or decrease certain pathways? So the last 10, 20 years have been like logarithmic in terms of Absolutely. the understanding of the disease. Yeah. Where do we go from here? Where do you, where do you in the field go from here? Well, we're, we're, I would go and where my lab goes is really trying to understand the genetics better. And uh, we have uh, a lot of access for clinical trial data uh, from our own, but also from natural history studies um, um, to, to really link the genetics with the imaging and see how patients respond to certain therapies, but also see how their AMD develops over time um, and as a result of having certain genetic profiles. And then we can start understanding which are the genetics that drive the neovascular part of the disease. What is the genetics that makes photoreceptors survive less well or retinal pigment epithelial cells? So I think we need to, to start looking into that more and more. And one way to study that is uh, to, to, to very closely study post-mortem eyes. So you get eyes from donors that you really want to understand 
um, what is what is the pathophysiology? Uh, what are the what do the pathways look like? So you can dissect this a lot the more second. out. And, um, exactly. Yeah. And and another way to study it is really from from human stem cells and grow the stem cells out to become retinal pigment epithelial cells or even organoids, which are small mini eyes, mini eyeballs that you can culture in a dish and you can now study how these They're not uh, really develop. mini eyeballs, right? They just... <laughs> well, they have, they have many of the features, so they have They're like pigment. you grow them so you've got some of those layers of the onion. Exactly, exactly. In, in a, in a exactly. spheric formation and then you can start to play around with... You, different pathways. Right, well you can knock out certain genes, you can look at, at, at certain um, uh, genetics uh, of these stem cells, how they're predisposed to the disease, etc. So what does the future look like beyond um, just targeting the vasculature or complement? So I think there's a lot of technologies that are now available to, to approach the disease. Um, so one is regenerative therapy, where you uh, are able to reconstitute the cells where they are lost. For example, right now there's clinical trials, and they have been successful, where they can insert a sheet of retinal pigment epithelial cells. Yeah, it's mind-blowing, right? It's mind-blowing. Right. H how do they do that? So what they do is, uh, so, so the retinal pigment epithelial cells that grow on the membrane naturally, it's called the Brooks membrane. So the way you do that, you, you make an artificial Brooks membrane with composition very similar in to a dish. real. In a dish. Uh, you grow these retinal pigment epithelial cells to form a monolayer. And now you, you make it the size, the proportions of the area that, that where these epithelial cells are lost. Like you, you want to get the right Band-Aid size. Right, right, exactly. So you, you, and then you insert it microsurgically under the retina. And, uh, Along the Brooks membrane. Yeah, you, you, you partly you, you layer it on the, on the old Brooks membrane um, and then uh, let it grow back. Uh, and now the retina, it could very well be that photoreceptors are lost above those RPE cells, but now you can also turn the retina and turn a better part of the retina above these RPE cells. Yeah, so, so with all of these advances, will we have this cured in the next 10, 20 years? I don't think so, and, and one of the reasons why it's, it's very difficult to, to so, sort of cure the disease is that the disease is still very heterogeneous. We call it age-related macular degeneration, but there's several ways that uh, de degeneration happens. So I'll talk mostly about genetics, and we know there's several different pathways that are affected. Uh, we also know that apart from genetics is environmental factors that can affect the, the uh, risk of, of getting the disease and the progression of the disease. So there's not a, a one-fits-for-all type of therapy available. Um, so I think we, we, we are making progress. I think the progress has to come from these new technologies, but also having better ways of delivering therapies, uh, more convenient, less invasive, and also by uh, finding uh, ways to treat the disease really early on. Maybe even before people notice that they have lost visual acuity. That's kind of the holy grail, right? That's holy, and again, that's not like typical for, for AMD only, but again, you can um, follow patients uh, from very early on and see how to respond to therapy. Uh, you have to just capture these patients. You have to predict who is going to get the disease and start treating them early. And I think with such strong genetics, there's the possibility to be able to really 
identify who those patients might be. Absolutely. That's the strategy the field is taking. So, Menno, it's been such a delight talking with you today. It makes me want to go and retrain as an eye surgeon. Thank you so much for talking with us, and good luck with the rest of your research. You're welcome, and uh, it was a pleasure. Well, you've all been listening with your ears, but now I know you're thinking about your eyes. I certainly am. I think it's really fascinating, certainly as an immunologist, when you think about how the immune system is attacking something that should be immune privileged, and in this case, that's the eye, and how an understanding of eye and vision and inflammatory pathways and genetics together can help us understand a new disease and come up with new therapeutics. Which means for me, I think I better get back into the lab. And in the meantime, please keep telling your science fans about us, like us on Facebook and Twitter, download the podcast from your favourite podcast app and rate us on iTunes. Thanks for listening and now for me, it's back to the lab.